Hey everyone, this is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Today's guest is Coast Guard veteran Juan Reyes. Juan was born and raised in Colombia. When he was eight years old, Juan and his mother took the long trek to the United States from Colombia with the help of coyotes. Eventually, they made it to Panama and stayed in a dangerous house that people would consistently drive by and shoot up. Juan and his mother escaped the house in the middle of the night and ultimately made it to the United States. Juan would go on to enlist into the Coast Guard and worked with law enforcement interdiction teams to take down drug smugglers utilizing vessels to traffic narcotics. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may... Reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you can email me at josh at urbanvalor.com. Enjoy the show. Uh, so my name is Juan Reyes. I serve with the United States Coast Guard. I joined in 2008 and separated in 2018 from active duty. Um, and then I'm continuing my reserve time. Um, I got out as an E6, pretty uh, also first class, specifically a yeoman in the Coast Guard. Uh, so yeomans are administrative personnel. We did all the HR component of the Coast Guards, uh, from payments to um, entry into the Coast Guard, processing out, DD-214s, everything that has to do with administrative uh, uh, roles within the Coast Guard. So I was born and raised in Colombia. Um, I grew up there for about nine years. Um, big family. My grandma and my grandpa, they had about 11 kids. Uh, in total. So inside of one house, it was a big family. All my uncles and aunts all lived together. Um, throughout the years, little by little, they all started to uh, migrate to the United States. Um, and so in two, uh, 1998, my mom decided it was time for her to uh, split ways and head over to the U.S. and join the family. Um, we were kind of like the last three that were there in Colombia, along with my grandparents. Um, I was primarily raised by my grandparents. Um, my grandpa's a blacksmith, and so as a child, I grew up being there with him and kind of sharing some memories with him and helping the family out. Um, and so that was that was what we grew up doing. And so after about um, into in 1998, my mom and I decided to go, and so we started our way to the U.S. Uh, we didn't have very much money to get to the U.S., so we went. Uh, we got a visa as far as Panama from Colombia and then from Panama all the way to the US. We either on bus, walking, taxis, anybody that would give us a lift and try to get to the US. So when I was in the middle of my trip, my um, journey with my mom, um, I, I, I got to see a lot of different things that were happening around me. And to this day, I feel like it's just a memory that happened yesterday. I am very vivid, vivid memories of the whole trip. It took us about two and a half months to get to the US from Colombia. Uh, you know, like I said, we just, we didn't have the resources to, to get to the U.S. in, in a single flight or, or have a U.S. citizenship or a residency to just come straight to the U.S. We had to illegally get to the U.S. Wow. Um, do you recall any obstacles or challenges that you faced during that process? Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite scary, to be honest. Uh, as an eight-year-old kid, um, I remember the coyotes would take us from one house to the next and sometimes they would just leave us and it was kind of like well i guess we lost everything we got to figure out how to kind of continue right um, we did have family in the u.s we would call and say hey like is there a way you can help us get from here to there um, really close family we support each other as much as we could 
um, even in the situation that we were in. And we got in contact with this lady. She was really uh, well known. Um, one of my uncles had gone through her in the past as we were kind of, as he was making his way through Central America and Mexico. And she was able to take us in from where we, we were left off and kind of just left on our own. Um, and again, it was just my mom. She was very young at that time as well. And I was only eight and a half years old. But this woman, it, there was something different about her. Um, she wasn't um, just an average person. Um, she was guarded. She had her own guards. Um, her house was surrounded by a double uh, wall. Uh, it's probably like, an eight, like a T-wall. It was all the way around the compound. Um, and there was nights where you would hear gunshots firing at her house and people just driving through and trying to just kill whoever was in the house. Um, she had some kind of power over the city. You can tell that uh, she was well-connected, um, I would assume, in the drug industry. Uh, but we ended up there, and that's just the place that we were at. We were in a back room. It was just my mom and I. Um, my mom didn't feel safe being there either. There was times where some of the guards would make or try to make a move um, on my mom, and my mom was very, like, just leave me alone. And it got to a point where it got really uncomfortable. She felt that she was in danger, and I was in danger as well. And so one night, we just she just woke me up in the middle of the night, and she said, let's get our stuff and let's leave. So we went to the back of the house. We jumped over the wall, my mom and I, and we just left um, because we, we just weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, the lady uh, happened to be on drugs quite often. Uh, one night, she got up, and she says that there was a man in the house that was trying to kill her. Uh, she would shower with a shotgun next to her. Um, she slipped and fell in the bathroom. I think she was like in the middle of going through something. She grabbed the shotgun. Her son walked in to the hot, to the actual bathroom to see what happened to her. And she shot towards him. Luckily, she missed because of the situation she was in. Um, but they were able to get her out, but she was knocked out by the time they got her out of the bathroom. But this was the thing that was kind of happening on like, every other day or something like that. And so it was, um, it was very frightening for me, right? It was kind of like, is, is this normal? Like, are we okay to be here? And my mom just said, this is enough. And we probably spent there like two weeks and we left. People would help us, uh, randomly. My mom would find a way to make a connection with someone to help us out at some point. For the most part, we were being escorted, uh, either by paid service or in this case, the lady, she was going to help us. Uh, kind of continue moving forward, but obviously we left that situation. Um, and I don't recall what happened or how it happened, but we were able to get to the next place. Um, we jumped on a bus, uh, migration stopped, took everybody down. They knew we were from Colombia just because of our accents. It was very uh, evident. And so they kind of pushed us off to the side. They took all of our stuff and, you know, back to zero, you know, just with nothing. So whatever we would get, we would lose. Um, there was times where we would be walking in the middle of the, you know, forest, whatever it was. And there was like a, like a barn. And my mom was just like, let's just go in here. And we would sleep in that barn, uh, for the night. And my mom would tell me of how much fun I would have waking up. And there was just chickens all over us. And I would just be like, Hey, like mom here, look, there's a chicken. Um, and so little stories like that, uh, were the part that, I remember the most uh, being with my mom and I think uh, it, it definitely brought us closer together. Like her and I's relationship going through this traumatic event brought us much closer. 
where we we just understand each other yeah. in a, in, a, in a different way. Wow. Yeah. And this was you were in Colombia or Panama? So I was uh, from Colombia. We got a flight to Panama. Mm. Um, I got to see the uh, Panama Canal. She took me, and that was uh, the extent of our like, vacationing. And then from that point forward, it was just buses, um, trucks, whatever we can get on to kind of move north uh, until we met our coyote, and then. From that point, they started escorting us from one house to the next, all the way through to um, to the border of uh, the U.S. So I ended up in uh, Tijuana at the very end. Uh, that's where uh, it was my point of entry. My aunt at that time, a U.S. citizen, she would drive across the border and she picked me up. I get in the vehicle and we crossed the border of the U.S. It was in, uh, as straight as it is now. Um, as a child, I was just laying in the backseat. I was asleep and migration at that time didn't ask any questions. They're like, Hey, you know, what's his name? So and so. And then just kind of let you through. Um, and that's how I got in through San Diego border. And we ended up living in Alhambra, California. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was your, um, what was your life like, uh, when you got to Alhambra? It was, uh, it was good. I felt much safer, uh, being with family now. Um, my anxiety, waking up early, that stuff as a child kind of went away little by little. Um, I got to live with one of my aunts, uh, and my mom, we lived with my aunt there. And from there, we then lived with another aunt because living with family after a length period of time, people kind of want their own space. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's important to know that and respect that boundary. And so my mom did. And so we would just kind of live with different sisters. Again, my mom has... 11 brothers and sisters. So it was a pretty big family. Um, and there was only one brother and one sister that were still in Colombia. The rest of them were already in the U S wow. yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was good. It was a good transition for me. I started to learn English. Um, I would, you know, went I went to uh, a middle school where they actually had the, uh, English as a second language, uh, program. And that really helped me out. I was, uh, very advanced in math in writing. Um, so the only thing I really had to worry uh, about was English and my English writing. So during the time that we were already living in, in Alhambra, my cousins were going to an ROTC program. It's known as the Navy League or the Sea Cadets. Uh, there's actually a company in, um, in Long Beach at the Coast Guard station there uh, that they, they drill a lot of there. It's Hamilton. And so because they were affiliated with that and they enjoyed going, my mom wanted me to um, be a part of that as well. So I can, you know, use my English, learn kind of, you know, the structured environment that she saw in me as a child that I enjoyed having a good structure. And so I joined the Navy League at the age of 10 and a half because when I got there, I wasn't old enough to join, but I would see my cousins marching in full uh, Navy dungaree uniform at that time with the jeans, the bell bottoms, the light blue shirts. And so that's what they wore during that time. This was back again, back in like uh, 99, 2000. And so I was always kind of, kind of passionate about it. And I was like, Hey, I, I kind of like that. Like, I want to be a part of that. And so the moment I met that age requirement, I joined. And from that point forward, I feel like my life changed dramatically. I felt like this is what I really enjoyed, uh, being a part of that and uh, being at the LA Long Beach uh, sector, the base for the Coast Guard, 
I got to see what the Coast Guard did. I got to get on their aids to navigation uh, vessels. I got to see their small boats. I got to interact with the Coast Guard. So I kind of felt familiar with this uh, branch. And so from that point forward, I told myself, I'm never going to join the military, you know, and, and I was just like, I would leave it as an option for the future. And so it, when I got to the age of 18, um, I was working at Wells Fargo Bank and I met this reservist, army reservist, and he had done uh, a few years of active duty too. And he says, hey, uh, you should join the military. And, and I was kind of like, well, I did ROTC, I did the Navy League, I did, I did the Sea Cadets and I had a really good time. I just don't know if it's for me. And so a few months went by and then I went back to him. And I said, you know what? I think you're right. I think I do want to join the military. I do have a passion for it. Um, I told myself that I didn't want to do it after, you know, having a great time. I just didn't see myself actively in the Coast Guard. And so that's when I decided, you know what? I am going to join. Um, and again, at that time, I only had my, uh, my residency. I was in a U.S. citizen because, you know, I came into the U.S. illegally. And so because my mom got married in the U.S., we then began our, you know, residency uh, process. And so by the time I joined the Coast Guard, I was only a resident, which mm -hmm. meant that I can only do one enlistment and I, I wouldn't be able to extend or renew my contracts unless I became a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. I went to this uh, recruiting office and I felt like they just didn't have time for me. It's almost like they didn't want me to join and I would call like, hey, what do I need to do? What's the process? I took my ASVAP at that time. Um, what do you need from me? When can I go to basic training? You know, when can we start the contract? And just radio silent. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll go to another recruiter then if they don't want to give me time then. So then I went from uh, living in Fontana, looking for a recruiter out there, to driving all the way to LA to find a recruiter, Coast Guard recruiter out there. Wow. And within a matter of two weeks, that recruiter in LA had a date for me, gave me a, a $3,000 bonus that at that time was amazing. Um, and so I got to stay in District 11, which is California area uh, for the Coast Guard. So I was guaranteed a District 11. So I stayed at least somewhat close to home. Um, and then I went to basic training uh, October 5th of 2008. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what to expect. I had a little bit of experience through the Navy League and the Sea Cadets. We would do a one week or two week kind of basic training environment, uh, being a part of that organization and going into the Coast Guard. It was it was a whole new experience. I didn't know what to expect. A lot of people say, ah, go to the Coast Guard train. You know, it, it's fun. It's a vacation. You'll enjoy basic training there. I got there and it was just like, full on on your face in your face from the moment that you're in that bus and you're just like whoa what's gonna happen you know these guys with the round covers come in can't even see their faces they're yelling at you and um and yeah and so then that's when it all began for me and kind of uh staying mentally strong for myself during that time and being away from family um having that very strong bond with my mom and my family this was my first time ever being away from home or catching a flight by myself from California to the East Coast and traveling to Cape May, New Jersey, where our basic training takes place. I think for me, the, the part that kind of um, sunk into me into like this deep like relationship with the military was the team bonding that takes place. And I think that connection is, is a big connection that to this day I feel it. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be someone I served with. It can be with any military veteran. Um, you know, the moment I see that they're a military veteran or they served or they're in the reserves or something, I just, I feel like that's family already. And I think that's the part that I enjoyed most about basic training is that you build a community. And from that point forward, you're never going to be alone. You always have someone with you. So from basic training, I got orders to Coast Guard Cutter Morgenthau. That's out of San Francisco. Um, the, it's a, a three, uh, 378 foot square um, uh, cutter. And they would do missions down south, go to Alaska. Um, so just different missions depending on where they went. And I got orders to go to the uh, main prop unit, which is main propulsion. I was working with the engineering department. We were in charge of the uh, two diesel engines along with the two turbines and uh, the two generators that were part of the ship. So depending on the mission that we would take on, the first one that I went on and the only one that I really went on with the Coast Guard, uh, with Coast Guard Cutter Morgenthau, was we headed down south to do counter drug missions. Mm. Yeah. Wow, what was that like? It was a very unique experience for me, um, simply because you hear a lot of this, you know, Oh, you're Colombian, then uh, your family must have drugs, you know. Oh, cocaine, that's where it comes from. And, and as a child, I, I didn't know that part of my culture, right? I was eight and a half years old, didn't really know it, wasn't around it. Then I came to the U.S. and I got to, I got to like hear all these, you know, different things about, oh, Colombians, shows, movies, this and that. And so people build uh, an idea of what it is to be Colombian, right? And so... When I went on this first cruise down to uh, South America, I got to witness what they were talking about, and and I could I couldn't believe it. It was it was a bit of a a shock for me because during this time I I'm bilingual in Spanish, I'm fluent in Spanish, and we only had one Spanish translator on board the ship. And I volunteer. I said, hey, I, I speak Spanish fluently. I know he's by himself and he's the only one doing it. And we run 24-hour operations. I'm happy to support any way I can. And again, I was 19 years old at this time. And so they signed me up. They said, okay, sounds good. We're going to add you to the uh, rotation to do watch and do everything so that we can call you whenever we need you. And being down south, we started doing a counter-drug mission. So things started happening uh, things started moving really fast for me. It was, uh, it, it was new for me. First, I was getting used to being out on a ship for 30 plus days at a time, then pulling into port, refueling, uh, getting everything we needed and going back out at sea. So that alone was a, a, a shock for me as well. Um, and just being enclosed in, you know, 378 feet of space and living with, you know, 110 other people there. Wow. And so it was, it was all new to me. Right. And, but I think after a few weeks, it just became, it, it's where I started learning about my routines, right? What can I do to mentally stay focused, healthy, and kind of moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. And and sure enough, being a part of the uh, translator, uh, being a translator for the mission helped me out a lot because it got me in front of a lot of our leaders on the vessel. And so I started doing some of the translations during the boardings. And so they gave me like my jacket, they gave me my stuff. And I wasn't a boarding team member at that time. Um, so I would just go in after the boarding team would take over the small vessel, the fishing vessel, the pangas, whatever it was. Uh, they would bring me over and I would help with the translation. Um, or I would stay on the vessel. And as they brought in the detainees, then I would, you know, interview them and say, hey, where are you from? 
Um, show me your identification, where are you coming from, where are you headed, and just getting the basic information that we needed to kind of build the case uh, for the mission, right? So when you say boarding team, um, are you referring to the guys or gals that actually board the vessel that's transporting narcotics? Right. So the boarding team member would be our Coast Guard team mm -hmm. that has been trained in law enforcement and in, in a boarding capacity. And so they know how to, you know, take the vessels, um, follow the vessels, uh, pursue the vessels. And then once they're on board, they know how to do their LE basics, which is, you know, bring them down, do their search, bring them onto their vessel, handcuff them, bring them into the, to the big vessel. And then, um, and then continue the inspection on the cutter itself, right? Mm. So they would do the basic training to become law enforcement uh, boarding team members. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, now, can you recall the first time you ever seen like a big load of narcotics on one of these missions? Yeah, I think it was like maybe one or two in the morning. I was dead asleep. And one of, uh, one of my shipmates comes and he just shakes me. He goes, hey. We have a case. We got to get going. You got to get dressed. Hurry up. And by the time I got to, um, to, to the outside of the ship, we hear two small, two go fast, just hauling ass, just traveling down the water. And they're all going opposite directions so that we can't chase them, right? So we sent the helo, chased one down. Um, they were able to do some disabling fire, uh, which shot uh, from the actual aircraft. They would shoot the main blocks of the engines. And they would just go dead in the water, right? And at this point, they would then, the, the, the team that was on, not the team, but like the, the smugglers that were on the boat, they would get all the gas and just dump it all out into the drugs, into the vessel, whatever they could do. And then they would just light it up on fire. And then they would just jump off the vessel and just start swimming. So then that's when our small boat would pull over and pull them out of the water, do like a search and rescue, find them, bring them on board. And the big, and then the cutter will pull up next to it with their firefighting teams on the side of the ship. And they would just hose it down with water to try to like preserve the evidence, to try to preserve the, the bells of cocaine that were there. So then once that happened, we would then just start um, boarding, uh, loading up all the cocaine that we would get that we can salvage from the fire and then bring it up to the to the cutter and then house it in a in a, a confined space. Wow. So they would shoot the engine block from a helicopter? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd be sitting in a boat yeah. and then just on standby just watching this happen? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so we would kind of they would do uh warning shots all in the front, warning shots. And if they just didn't obey, then they would just keep going and they would actually do the disabling shots. Oh wow! Um, how, how much uh, how much cocaine did you see your first time? Do you, do you remember? I mean, in bells, it must have been like one vessel had like thirty, some had fifty. It just depended on the size of the of the panga and the, or the fishing vessel, whatever vessel we actually found with the narcotics. Um, they all carried a different amount. Semi submersibles carried a whole lot more. Um, so it just depended on the, on the vessel. So it was quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like 30, 50 bales of cocaine. Yeah. And how many, how many kilos is in a bale? Um, you would typically find maybe like five, 10, 15, 20, 30, like 40. Wow. They're pretty heavy. They're big. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. And the crazy thing is you would find them floating on the water. 
right? And so they would wrap them in black, like plastic, right? Mm -hmm. um, one time we were out at sea on a Canadian vessel and I'm sitting on the back in the flight deck and just kind of hanging out, watching two of my friends do some handcuffing training. And I look over to the side, out to the horizon, and all I see is just these black things floating in the water. And I'm like, hold up. That, those are cocaine bells. And so one of my buddies goes, oh, shoot, we got we to mark it or else we're going to lose it. So he goes and grabs paper, uh, styrofoam paper plates, and just starts throwing it and just starts throwing markers so that they can float in the water and we can just kind of come back with one of the small boats and just collect them. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it just kind of goes to tell you um, there you, you can find them just about, you know, on the vessels. They, they'll, they'll get scared, so they'll start dumping them as they're being chased. Um, they'll do different things to try to avoid, you know, being found with the narcotics. Why do they jump out and start swimming away? Like, where do they think they're going to go? You, you guys are on a boat. Like, there's... Yeah, I mean, I think their goal is just to sink all the evidence mm -hmm. and, and just not have that available as additional um, uh, evidence for their cases. What do you do with these guys once you get them in your custody? So we'll bring them into the vessel and uh, we'll detain them for as long as we can. If we're on a mission, we're on a path, um, they'll connect with DEA, with different agencies to have them dropped off in different areas. One of the places that we commonly would drop them off would be in Panama, just because it was a, it was a halfway point for us as well. Mm. So they would, essentially, they wouldn't have to like do no time. They wouldn't get any type of uh, repercussion from transporting this dope, or, or when you say drop off in Panama yeah. with law we would hand it off to other law enforcement oh, agencies okay. that would then take over and detain them, and then we would keep our our, our cases together mm. uh, because the boarding team member would have to write all their statements, what they did. Uh, we would package our video, our images, our uh, um, data sheets about each one of the detainees, all the information we can get from them. Um, we would just go ahead and hand that off to them to the agency. Oh, wow. And then they would continue the case with them separately as we kind of go on and continue the mission because we would finish then and we would go out and we would find more. We detain them. We'll do another mission. We'll keep them there for like a few days and then we would go back because yeah. it's costly, right? To go back and forth just for two, three people. Mm -hmm. So we would stay out for a week or so and feed them, take care of them, give them everything they needed. And in the meantime, continue our mission. Wow. Any other um, missions that stand out to you? Uh, for me, the mission that really stood out in my, in my, in my time in the service was actually going to Afghanistan. Um, and I thought that that was pretty cool. I got orders to go to, uh, Manaman, Bahrain. Um, I was out there with the fifth fleet with the Navy. Uh, the Coast Guard has an amazing partnership with the Navy out there. We actually have, uh, during the time that I was there, we have five, uh, 110 foot cutters vessels that would, do a lot of patrolling out in the Gulf. Uh, and because they're Whitehall ships, they're more of like a humanitarian kind of style. And so because of it, we were able to kind of go around the Gulf pretty openly, freely. Uh, we did have our weapons, self-defense, everything that we needed out there. Um, but we wouldn't cause so much of an alarm as a Great Hall Navy ship would in the Gulf, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that was um, a great opportunity for us to get on some of these um, vessels that they had out there and we would board them, give them water and do very humanitarian and try to gather information as well at the same time. Mm. What types of information were you guys trying to gather? Um, just see if there was any kind of um, 
like if they saw drugs or if they saw weapons or anything like that out there, um, they would gather some of that intel and bring it back. Uh, but for the most part, it was humanitarian kind of posture, you know, yeah. uh, out in the Gulf. And then we would just travel between Bahrain, Kuwait, um, Djibouti, um, Dubai. They would just do different kind of uh, missions out there. So. Did you ever intercept any traffickers out that way? No, I didn't. I wasn't, a, I wasn't actually on a vessel when I was in Bahrain. I was uh, what we would call shoreside. Um, that's the time that I did majority of my job was human resources. At that time I was an E5 there. Um, and I did all the pay, the benefits, everything for this, for the personnel that were deploying to Kuwait, Afghanistan and Bahrain. And so we manage all the personnel going in and out of theater. So even though I was stationed in Bahrain shoreside, you know, on a base, um, I did support teams out in Afghanistan out in Kuwait, right? And so because of it, um, we, I would deploy to Afghanistan to support them administratively. And so I would get out there, meet with them, make sure that they're all taken care of, make sure that their benefits, their pay, everything's going well for them, right? And we would do annual assessments. Um, and so because of it, I went to Afghanistan and I would travel to, I would, I would catch one of the cutters into Kuwait. So I would catch a ride with them if they were heading over that way. Um, and then when I got to Kuwait, I would go to Arif John and then from Arif John, I would then take a C-130 or, um, a C, what is it? C-17, C-18s and then fly into Afghanistan, uh, with the Air Force or the Navy. And then I would then jump to different MOBs going forward. And so we would go to, um, Kandahar, um, Leather, Camp Leatherneck, uh, just the different places that we operated out of, right? And I got to visit them, see everything. But there was a time where, uh, I think it was Arif John, we landed and I was there for about a week or so uh, with the team because not only did I make sure that they were okay, but I also wanted to to join them and be a part of them and just kind of support them however I can during the time that I was there, right? And on the last day when I was going to fly out, um, one of the planes began to get fire as they were leaving the term, the tarmac, right? And so all flights got grounded. You can hear the bombing kind of, they would shoot rockets randomly everywhere. Um, you would hear a lot of, uh, the, uh, the detonation of IEDs, uh, because the Marines were out in Camp Leatherneck. So they would do a lot of, uh, road clearing. And when they would come back, they would bring the IEDs they would find and they would then explode them, right? Mm. Uh, detonate them. And so, that was kind of like a different environment for me because I was like, I knew what I'm going into, mm-hmm. but I just didn't expect that to happen while I was there. <laughs> and so you would, you know, I would be walking headed to Chow and then all of a sudden you hear all the alarms and they're just shooting rockets into, into the camp. Right. <laughs> and so you would have to like run to like a local shelter and then like kind of cover yourself and wait for the teams that do all the, um, the patrolling to make sure it's clear. Um, and then bring us back out, right? Yeah. And then being grounded because we're being, you know, shot at on a plane. I was just like, oh my God, here we go. I'm about to jump on a C-130, big old target in the in the sky, you know? Um, and so that was, that was kind of like shocking to me as well. Um, and yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's it, kind it of was wild. A culture. <laughs> it's kind of why it's not it's not tip, it's not typical for an average person to be worried about bombs. A coasty, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> or even just yeah, yeah, just worried about incoming bombs just walking to the chow hall or something. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? um, 
So you mentioned earlier that that you'd be on on these vessels sometimes for like thirty days at a time. Yeah. Right. Um, how many people were you on there with? So on the so typically the cutter that I spent the most time out at sea with uh, um, were the. 378 cutters and we would actually be out there for three four months at a time but we would go out for like 30 days come back you know the 20 days come back and so it would just it would be different every single time we would get out there but i think the longest was like 35 days for me out at sea yeah i think uh you know 30 days out at sea small you know confined spaces brings a, brings everybody together whether you want it or not and it, it kind of becomes like being in high school all over again. You know, you're like, everybody knows about so-and-so, what's going on, what are they doing? Like, everybody just knows everybody's business. So you have to be careful, like, how you say things, when you want to say things, and even what you do, because someone's always watching you, right? And so you'll have times where um, one of the guys, he's he's a jokester guy, right? And he's sitting there and uh, on the table, you know, inside of the chow hall, and down the middle is a walkway that leads into the stairs going aft, right? And one of the new recruits showed up to the vessel and he's just walking, looking very nervous, doesn't know what's going on. He's following a guy in front of him. He's telling him he has to sleep in the very back. And so he's walking him and, and the guy looks at him and as he's walking by, he's like, walk him aboard and gives him a big old spank in the back. And from that moment forward, he felt so embarrassed um, that it was just like, what am I getting myself into kind of thing, right? And so sure enough, later, like the the guy for joking around gets court-martialed for what he did. Obviously, it was wrong in front of everybody. Um, so that was addressed. And uh, But he was known to do things like this, right? So you always have those people that just do things, right, out right. of impulse. Yeah. And so you, you kind of get a kick out of it because it's funny at the moment after being there for so long, right? And then you're just kind of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, like that, that's not the right time to do it or, you yeah. know, it's not an appropriate thing to do. But, um, but there's just things are always happening, right? You know, you pull into a foreign port, um, you get to see everybody's like, you know, bad side. They get out there, they're drinking, they're on the floor. You got to drag them back to the ship. Um, and it doesn't help that when the, when the cutters pull up to these ports, there's like people with bags of alcohol. They're like, hey. How much do you want, you know? And then half the guys are like, give me the whole bag, right? And so they throw it all in their bag and their empty backpacks. Typically, that's what you do, right? You get you get off the ship and you throw empty backpack with you and you carry everything that you buy out there. Yeah. Um, and you just get to go everywhere, you know? Yeah. What yeah. what uh, do you, what was your favorite port? Uh, I think my favorite port, honestly, uh, was Mazatlan. Oh, wow. And with Mazatlan, it was the first time I had gone there. Uh, we were on a Navy ship. Um, it was a good experience overall. Uh, as soon as the vessel, uh, as soon as the ship pulled up, they had a big event. It was like a grand opening event almost because I don't think the port had been open to U.S. vessel or U.S. military vessels in the past. And so when we got there, they had a big um, kind of like a party, like a fiesta. They had mariachi. They had tacos. They had everything. Like it was really good. And it was all just open for, for the crew there to enjoy. And at that time, I was stationed with uh, Pack Tacklet down in San Diego. It's a Pacific Tactical Law Enforcement team, which specialized just in boarding. And so we would deploy with groups of 10, uh, teams of 10, teams of 12. And we would go on foreign ships, either Canadian, Brits, U.S., or even Coast Guard. And we would take this very tactical law enforcement team that that's all they did 24-7. We trained and trained just to do that. 
And so we would deploy with the Brits, the Navy. And during this one, we went with the Navy. Um, and it was just a really good time uh, being there. Uh, felt very welcomed uh, there. But, you know, once we got past that, you know, our, our small, really tight group of 10, it was just like like a little SWAT team out in the middle of Mazatlan just enjoying and someone always watching, making sure everything's okay and just uh, having a really good time there. Yeah. Um, in the Coast Guard, do you guys have any traditions with being on ship? Like, for example, I know when I was on a ship in the Navy, um, when you cross the equator on, in the Navy, you go through like, you go through this polywog day yeah. and you get, you get, you get the shit hazed out of you basically yeah. for a whole day to become a shell bag. Did you guys have any traditions like that? We did. We did the same thing too. Oh, uh, you did the yeah, polywog we, day? Yeah, we, we did all that. Uh, so just depending on which what part in the world you were, what, what line you crossed, um, you would get to do that. Um, so I got the sand sailor for being in Afghanistan and, you know, out in the desert. Um, and I was able to get the one for the Panama Canal too. Mm. Um, doesn't really happen too often where Coast Guard cutters will change tack on. So you have a, you have a tactical commander, which is the Atlantic area commander or the Pacific area commander. And so they split the U.S. into their own unique zones and depending on the number of th- states they cover, right? And if a vessel that's like a, a 378 in the West Coast crosses over to the Atlantic side or the Caribbean side, then they switch commanders, tactical commanders, right? And so it typically doesn't happen uh, unless there's something going on with the resources mm. or there's some kind of special mission that we're, we're being asked to do. Um, but luckily during that trip, I was able to do the, the cross the Panama Canal. And that was a unique experience because um, from when I was sharing earlier, the last time I was there was when I was a uh, eight and a half year old with my mom visiting the Panama Canal. That's right. And, and it was a bit of an emotional full circle for me, right? Because, you know, I was a non-citizen. I had never, I never knew that I was ever going to come back to the Panama Canal, you know, yet crossing it um, with all my brothers and sisters on a ship, right? And just being a part of that crew, you know, and they, we crossed late at night, but I stayed up the whole night mm-hmm. um, just taking that experience in because it was so unique to me and emotional to me. Right. That was yeah. a special moment. It was yeah. for you. Wow. Um, did you ever face any hardships while you're in the military? Um, not really. Um, honestly, I can say that I was very lucky to have the leadership that I encountered at each of my different uh, units that I went to. Um, I feel that throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to seek help um, and mentorship and whether it came natural or maybe, you know, the mentors reached out to me, it was, it was a two week uh, relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really put me in the right place at the right time. Every single time I went to a different unit and, and to this day, I, I still stay in touch with these individuals that kind of shaped my career in the Coast Guard. Nice. And I, and I do thank them very much for what they've done, where it was just a few words or an action they took. Um, I, I took that, you know, in, and then I ran with it. Yeah. And, it and it really went well for me. So I, I'd say I was in good hands. Yeah. So it was 2016. I was stationed in San Diego uh, with uh, the Pacific Tactical Law Enforcement team there. And I had been there now. I, I got to Pat Tacklet in 2014, January of 2014. Um, because before there, I was in Afghanistan, in Kuwait and Bahrain. 
And so I was happy to be back home finally to San Diego. It was the first time I was stationed back in California. And while I was there in 2016, my stepdad passed away. He had an aneurysm. And at that time, my mom, my brother, and my grandparents lived in one house. And now that my stepdad passed away, I, I felt obligated to want to help and be there for my mom. She was going through a really hard time. And, you know, like I mentioned before, my mom and I have this really strong bond together, right? And so she looked at me and she was just like, I need you, you know, I, I really do need you. And, you know, you're the, you're the older brother and, and I need you. And so that moment it clicked, you know, that my career with the Coast Guard wasn't going to be forever. That at some point I had to make a decision, whether it was to continue for a 20 year career or take a look at the end of my current end of enlistment, which was going to be in two years from that date in 2016. And so the gears started turning and I started like, you know, what am I going to do? And to that point, I've always been kind of like, what am I going to do next? What's going to happen? How is it going? And one day I have this bright idea. The next is a different idea. The next is a different idea and just kind of all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was okay to be in that environment because I was well grounded. I was with the military, had a really good career. I enjoyed my command and I was looking forward to the future. Right. But personally, selfishly, I thought to myself, what am I going to do after the military? And given the situation that I was in, I started thinking, well, one, education. You know, I told myself, why did I even join, right? Why did I even join the military? And and I always told myself, I, I, I'm going in because, one, I need to become a U.S. citizen. Two, I want to get education. You know, I didn't have those resources growing up. You know, to, the, to that point, my, my mom still didn't have what I need for, you know, for her to send me to school when I was... 17, 18 years old, right after high school, which is why I joined the military too. I didn't want to put that burden on her because I knew she had already done a lot and she was working really hard to establish herself as well and continue to do that. So then I joined the military for that reason. So then I, I told myself, all right, let's go back to 19 year old me. What is it that I want? Right. And I said, I want an education because I know that's something that would make my mom and my family very proud. So then the next morning I called University of Phoenix and I joined their bachelor's program and I had just finished their associate. So I was going to finish the other 60 credits that I needed um, to finish my bachelor's degree. And so in those two years, I was able to get it done. And in 2017 was a time when I said, okay, am I going to stick to this plan? Am I going to continue to get out? And it was a really hard decision to, to do to like tell my command and say, I'm really thinking about getting out because I never thought I would be saying those words. Um, and so I told my command that I was thinking about getting out in 2018. My end of enlistment is going to be in you know March of 2018. And I asked them, can I extend to June of 2018? And so they allowed me to do like a special addition to, or, you know, um, uh, they added three months to my end of the contract. So then I applied for a temporary separation and temporary separation. Most people know it for baby bonding. Uh, a lot of moms use the temporary separation because they get out for two years. And by the end of the two years, they return back onto full active duty with the door open, pick up right where they left off and then continue on with new orders. 
And so one of the benefits of having a temporary separation was actually getting out for education or a career to follow a new career and just see what's out there, but still have the door open to go back into active duty. And so I applied for the program. I got accepted. Um, and so I was really happy. But then I, was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I got out. You know, I have two daughters at that time. Um, and so my mind was just like, how am I going to continue to provide for my family? Right. And so I started working for my executive officer that had just retired from that unit at Pac Tacklet. And so I was going through the TAPS class, right? And the, the transitioning officer that does the helping, she goes, Hey, did you know that, you know, your XO is working, you know, a few miles away and he's looking for people to help him for an evening shift. And I said, perfect. Sounds good. I picked up the phone. I called him. He's like, one, great. Show up. Let's do an interview. I'll send you through an agency and then you can start working for me as soon as possible. So then I applied for a special chat, sent it to my command, you know, can I get a second job? They, they approved it, like without a, without a thought, right? Um, I had a really good connection with my command as well. And they were very supportive of, you know, what was happening in my life too. And so I started going Coast Guard from 6.30 to 3.30. And then from 4.30 to 11.30 midnight, I was at the other job. And I was working with a beverage company. Um, I was doing a lot of the coffee manufacturing that was happening there. They would buy the green, they would buy the coffee green, they would roast it, they would grind it, they would make all these different formulas for different um, companies that they would uh, work with. And so that's what I did for the evening shift. They didn't have any supervisors or managers working in the evening. So I was like, I was the presence for management there. Um, and I helped them with their operations in the evening. I did that for about nine months um, from about September to May of 2018. So I ended up separating in March of 2018, but I was really working my butt off so that I felt that I had something to continue after the service. Mm -hmm. um, but it really burned me, burned me out doing yeah. that for a while. Yeah. Wow. And what are you doing now? So now I'm a supply chain manager, I work for a uh, healthcare organization. And one of the things that I enjoy the most is getting to use all the things I've learned in the military and like organizing project management, uh, people skills, soft skills, everything, and just putting all of that together and, and, and helping healthcare, um, our healthcare organization. Mm. And were you able to translate like the skills you've learned um, from the military into the civilian uh, world? Yeah like incorporate them in your jobs? Because a lot of veterans, they have a hard time yeah. translating their um, military experience um, into, you know, these um, civilian jobs. Uh, um, what did you do to do that? Is, it, is, is, is there anything specific that you think veterans can do to help them translate those skills into the civilian world? Um, yeah, there's a lot. Of, I, I think there's a lot more resources now, um, to help you with the trend, you know, the transition from military to civilian. But those are like papers, right? Things you write, things you type. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest transition is who you are as a person in the military and who you are as a person in, in the civilian world. And I think that's something that, you know, someone can proofread and fix for you, right? Um, it's something that 
you have to take on yourself to do and work on yourself to make that transition happen. Um, one thing that I learned and I learned fast was someone said it once it like, um, fail and fail fast, right? And fail fast, learn from it and keep going. Right. And that's something I did during that transition. You know, when I was working at the coffee company, I was just like, all right, sounds good. You know, I, I, I'll do what you need to do and I'll tell people what to do and we'll get it done. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like that. You know, my like, Hey, can you go do this? Can you go do that? It just, people are just like, no, like, I'm not going to do it. You know, like F you, you know, who the hell are you? You know? And I'm half the time. I'm always the youngest guy in the room and, and all the workers are typically older. Right. And I'm just like, all right, well, how do I get buy-in? Right. And I just didn't know how to do that. Mm. I didn't know how to do that. I was used to, you know, my collar devices and I was just like, Hey, we got to get this done. Let's get it done. Everybody's on the same page and everybody would do it. And if someone slacked, you let them know and they would carry their weight after that. Right. But not in the civilian world. I had to learn that. And I'm glad that I had the mentor I did, uh, which was my previous XL. We would have conversations about, you know, what was happening, how I was approaching the situation. He always had my back too. Right. Um, and so it helped me through that transition, just that one experience before I even got out of the military to realize that one, you know, petty officer first class is not going to be, you know, the same person out yeah. in the civilian world. Yeah. Wow. Um, we're going to wrap it up. Um, any last words? Um, no, I think, uh, I think the biggest part, another part too, that helped me in my transition um, was attending uh, my master's of business uh, for veterans um, at USC Mm. Um, that was a big accomplishment for me as well during my transition um, because I applied while I was on active duty not knowing what was going to happen and and I got out to pursue a master's degree knowing that my bachelor's degree came to an end as I got out at the same time, right? And so the MBV program really helped me out in, in putting um, those words that we're talking about, like how do you transition your resume from military to civilian? Uh, that was a big part of what helped me in that paper format transition, right? Yeah. But they also addressed how I was as a person too. And I got to listen and, and, and learn from everybody's story. You know, 100 veterans around you, mm. you pick up a few things yeah. that you really take with you and, and you kind of um, learn from their mistakes as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Awesome, Juan. Well, um, thanks for being here, brother. I appreciate yeah. you sitting down and sharing your story with us. It's, yeah. it's a big deal. So thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. Yeah, I got bad thoughts that make my mind scared. Hold me hostage and they don't fight fair. Who gon' pray for me and wipe on my tears? Who gon' save me if you not right here? Move this darkness and make my sight clear. Take me away cause I don't like here. Ghost of my past, they feeling the night air. Wake me up, I'm trapped in my nightmares.